Colin O'Flynn, welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me here. Yeah, it's great. So I reach out to you because you're going to be a speaker at uh, next month's Black Hat Briefings in Las Vegas, and you're going to be presenting a kind of updated version of a presentation that you gave on this really interesting hack you did of your oven to solve a really naughty problem that you had identified with the software that runs this device. So we're going to talk about that. But before we do that, Colin, tell our viewers slash listeners just a little bit about yourself and the company you founded, New AE Technology. For sure. I started my background maybe at the beginning to all electrical engineering, really. So I know, you know, security is a great space because you get people from all over. Um, so I'm terrible on network security, for example, but uh, my real love is electrical engineering. I started on the other side doing wireless protocol, Zigbee IP and all the sort of IoT stuff. Honestly, when it was called wireless sensor networks and it was just a cool research domain, it seemed. That spun me into security. I saw a talk by someone, Paul Kocher, that was part of this guy that, yeah, so he really started this field of side channel analysis where it's, or side channel power analysis, I should say. And even some timing attack work, of course he did, but right. It was like, it's amazing. Like devices are leaking information. So they run a cryptographic protocol and it seems like it shouldn't work, but just by observing the power used by the device on very fine scales, you can see differing number of bits going across the bus and stuff like that. So that is really what pivoted me to be honest as part of that i did research in the area so i did a phd in it and built tools that i was using for my research and the tools were all about taking measurements effectively doing it with open source and the point of that is that for researchers it's really nice to have reproducible tools coming from the engineering side i also lots of engineers that would say oh these attacks are impossible you need a phd to do them you need all this equipment which wasn't true. And, and the point of the company I started, New Age Technology, was to make reproducible equipment that researchers could use, but also engineers could use to interface with researchers. Um, and I guess it, it turned out it's like everything in life, a lot of luck in a way that it was right at the time there was more interest in hardware security. So we did a Kickstarter on this Chip Whisper Lite, which was one of the implementations of the hardware. And yeah, since then we've grown. So there's about six people full-time here uh, in Canada, five of us in Halifax, one in Ottawa. So Chip Whisperer, talk about what it is. Is it hardware? Is it software? Is it both? It's a bit of both. So the, the original idea of it was this full platform. So if we're doing side channel attacks and fault attacks, you normally, the kind of setup I would always show is if you bring a paper up, it's like the, the researcher has in their lab. So at the university, for example, we had a, a really nice oscilloscope that's worth like $200,000. And you don't need that oscilloscope, but it's just what they bought on some great grant one day. And so the problem I found is that when you go to recreate stuff, the researchers obviously using the super nice oscilloscope. And so I tried to make hardware that could replace the oscilloscope so that you could have a package of, hey, here's the software, the hardware, everything, right, for doing a power or fault injection attack. So yeah, so physically, as a reference, I happen to have, this was a later revision, but on video, it's there's a little box that does the power measurement and fault injection. And then typically there's some target that's a, a reference microcontroller that runs firmware or something like that. For it doesn't learning. look like it costs $200,000. No, exactly. So that's the thing. So yeah. it was 
the first version we were like 250 bucks and then we have spread out between upper and lower so now it goes from 50 to 4000 depending on variants and who's the customers for new ae and what types of people in your experience are interested in this using chip whisperer and what types of things are they using it for so we have a split of customers some of them are strictly researchers in terms of classic academic right using it to test a new algorithm or they uh, post quantums a good example there's lots of post quantum algorithm testing work testing new attacks things like that it it's roughly a third we have this third split between that a third split is what we call commercial and this is typically engineers right that are working at a company and they simply say hey we should recreate these attacks to test our stuff and then a third of it tends to be more like penetration testing, security companies or some government labs, which is doing are doing similar work, right, as penetration testing on internal systems. You've been interested in kind of hardware engineering design, as you, you say, in your LinkedIn profile since you were like 10. As a kid, this is something that you were just fascinated with. And you, you have the, the Radio Shack hardware and all this stuff. What's your... What's your take on embedded systems, particularly, we're going to talk about your, your oven work, particularly in the sort of consumer space, the retail space, the stuff that's being sold into homes and small businesses, the engineering culture that, or the engineering processes and status quo that's producing all this stuff? Mm. It's interesting because if you think of engineering in general, it's you think of engineering, maybe you think of building bridges or something like that, where it's very strict safety requirements. And in Canada, for example, yeah. especially we have a professional engineer, which you'd have liabilities. If I designed a poor bridge, I can go to jail because I designed it not to the standards it should be. So it's really interesting in software because we have computer engineering programs, which are supposed to have similar amounts of things taught to engineers, but then I, I think what is that it's, it doesn't feel the same, at least to me, right? The level of sort of rigorous code review is not always applied in that way, especially on consumer, you know, appliances, because cars, for example, have a lot of standards around safety and what they actually have to do and some testing they have to do. And, and you yes. could argue if that's effective or not, whatever, but that's, but it's there. Right. But like this oven, for example, that I looked at, it has a microcontroller that's controlling the heating element and it's always wired to a 240 volt, 30, 40 amp circuit. Yep. If that just turned on when I'm on vacation, what happens? Like, hopefully the oven is physically capable of surviving that. I don't know. I don't know if that's tested, but it's just firmware that turns on the heating element. And there isn't, there isn't the same regulatory attention to that aspect of the device's operation. And I would say the same, I think, is really true with, you mentioned automobiles. Yes, there are safety requirements for automobiles, but I'm not sure they actually extend to the software that's on automobiles these days because we're seeing a lot of really scary stuff and there does not seem to be any consequences for the automakers about mm. the scary stuff that's coming out. Let's talk about your kitchen and your oven. Because this is, again, going to be the, the focus of your, some really interesting research. It's going to be the focus of your talk at Black Hat. First of all, how long have you had this oven? What type of oven is it? And what was the problem that you became aware of with this oven? 
Uh, so it's an old Samsung oven. I don't, it, it was with the house when we got it in 2016 and, and I'm sure it was 10 years older at okay. least based on what I've seen. And so it has, and, and a lot of ovens do this feature where gas oven, uh, it's electric. Yeah. So electric, electric oven. oven. And when you turn it on, it goes into preheat mode and it shows you the temperature as it's heating up. Mm -hmm. And then once it hits the set temperature, it just displays the set temperature. Mm -hmm. And you have no idea what the actual temperature is. So you can put an oven thermometer in to, to see. And we had noticed that it would go off temperature pretty heavily. So it would say it was 375. It was actually at 250. And either you have a thermometer in there, or if you reset it, it'll show the right temperature again. Like you turn it on and off, right? It shows the right temperature again. And so you can see, oh, this thing's way off what it should be. So if you were to shut the oven off and then turn it on, then the temperature would reset to what the actual temperature inside the oven was. Exactly. Then... The logic seems to be basically that while it's below the set temperature, it's displaying the actual temperature until it crosses over and then it never updates it again. It just says 375, right? So if it's below and you reset it, then it's going to realize, or not, it knows the whole time, but it's going to yeah. show you. And That's with something idea. like baking, that becomes a real problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we really noticed it when we did a turkey one year and it took, it was like, oh, this should be done, but it's not even close, right? It's like an hour late now. And you got guests sitting there twiddling their thumbs at the table. <laughs> yeah. Luckily yeah. it was just, just us that year. Okay. But then we got dogs. That was the photo in the talk is like, what the hell? <laughs> We're going to be begging here, but. Yeah, for a lot of people. I'm sure they've had this frustration. But yeah. So when you encountered this problem, did you like hop on the customer support forums and try and figure out like what the solution is or if there was a fix or a setting you could adjust or something like that? I did, yeah. So there is, there's a few settings. You can try recalibrating it and there's some settings on convection you know, that'll automatically drop it. So it was none of those. And to be honest, I didn't think too much of it until there was an article from another guy in Halifax he actually had an oven fire. And then in that article, they mentioned, oh, there's this, someone's trying to do a class action lawsuit against Samsung for this group of ovens, including mine. And then they list all these complaints that are roughly the same. The temperature's way off, sometimes high, sometimes low. And they're blaming the thermometer. These are the lawyers, I think, are just picking out a, an item and saying, oh, the temperature sensor is defective. Which, which, it, to me, it seemed like it wasn't because if you reset it, it shows. Right. It seems to be a, a software issue, the way exactly. temperature is being read and, and, and figured into the operation of the oven. So you talked to your wife and said, I need to pull the oven out from the wall yeah. for a week or two. So I did. I bought a spare oven board, oven. control board, because it, it <laughs> seems like a bad idea. To... <laughs> Even before we get into that. Was there, like, when you went to look into what's going on with this oven, was there information that you could get, like schematics and service manuals and stuff that helped you understand how the device worked? Yeah, there was a, a service manual, some of the sites that sell them type thing. So I was able to get a service manual. You found a number of people complaining about this as well. We didn't end up getting a repair person in because when I was looking, a lot of people said, oh, they'll just try swapping different things out. And that's yeah. not... It seemed to be just like, unless the, th the uh, thermometer is wrong, but I could tell that wasn't it. 
the heating element could be broken, but seemed not. So to in that. your head, you were like, this is a software issue. Yeah. And, and to me, it looked a lot like if you've worked with PID controllers before, it looked like this isn't really tuned well because it's working. That's like spiking and then yeah. going to the wrong temperature long-term and stuff. So that was my original guess is like, it feels software is someone that's written bad software, right? This feels like bad software. Okay. So what was the process you used to get the software out of your oven and be able to look at it and see how it was written? So, um, the microcontroller and it's an old, uh, Toshiba, uh, eight bit, 16 bit microcontroller. Uh, so the first step was see what's the security and, they and have. When on you it. say old, what are we talking? Uh, I think it's sort of 2000 seemed to be the release. <laughs> So it's EOL now fully. Okay, it's a, yeah, two two decades old. Okay. Yeah, 2003 maybe. I, I can't remember exactly. And this Oof. is based on press releases or something. So it's not hard dates, but yeah, it's been EOL at least like four years, I suspect now, I think. Which is, if your oven is circa 2010 or something, 2008, that might not actually be crazy that it would have a you know, six or seven year old microcontroller in it. But anyway, exactly right. okay. So what were the impediments to, so you got this microcontroller, it's, it's on the back of the oven, you pull the oven out from the wall and you, you got the board there, the microcontroller on it. What do you do as a, as a hardware engineer then to um, suck the software out of it and be able to look at it and figure out what's going on? Yeah, so the first step is always just whatever research you can do. So in this case, get the part number off, check the data sheet and for this type of device, it's all public. It's not a you know secure device where you then have, you, you initially run into that. But luckily, the device it had a like an old bootloader in it that should just work to read it out. They had a few security features they enabled. So part of the talk is talking about using power analysis to recover the password. The main Toshiba, the, right. the microcontroller manufacturer, had allowed Samsung to set a password to stop someone from reading it out. And then they had a second feature that would just disable, you could set this flag that would turn off any read or write to the chip as well. So they also had set that flag. So initially I, I had to bypass both of those. The other problem of course, is it's an old microcontroller. So you, you don't just have modern tools don't work with it. So I also had to find an old, and luckily I found on eBay, an old dev kit for this device, which then had right, like the software and a programmer, stuff like that to actually physically talk to it. So yes. On and ship to you on a CD-ROM. Yeah, an old Windows XP. It only worked in Windows XP, so luckily yeah. a little VM running. They Which also speaks it. to the sort of age of some of the underlying systems. And, you know, this microcontroller might be circa 2000, but it's clearly utilizing elements that are significantly older than that. Exactly. Right. And I'm sure it's just the code has been compiled, and I'm sure it's the yeah. same, yeah, almost same code. As I said, my parents had a, a more recent version of this oven, and that version, it has a, I think it's an ARM-based microcontroller in it. It's a little more recent there, but it seems to have the same program flow flaw. I suspect this is like ovencontrol.c <laughs> compiled for everything. So you were able to bypass these controls, these safety locks, basically, that Samsung had put in place to prevent you from getting access to the embedded firmware. How long did that 
take you and how many tries. I, I remember talking to Charlie Miller and Chris Valisek about their Jeep Cherokee work, and they talked about how many times they bricked the head end unit that they were using to try and get to the CAN bus and having to keep bringing it back into the dealership and be like, oh, the radio is not working. So were you, were, was that the case here? Were there, were you bricking your oven or were you able to um, extract it without too much trouble? It wasn't too bad. So I did make, the other cheat I did is I made a little test board. So I found a, because the oven control board is like $200-ish if you have to buy a new one. And I made a little board that kind of had the chip on it, right, as a test. So then I could at least do, it didn't have the firmware, but I could set similar things, do all my testing on that. Although it did turn out that there was, when you bypass one of the features, there's a chance you erase it. And on my little test board, it rarely happened. And on my, I bought that spare board off eBay, it didn't happen. But the first time I did it on the real oven, of course, it just bricked it. So then I, and I think that was like 8 p.m. at night. So the repair shop locally is closed that has a cart. And uh, I was way too overconfident because my wife had actually was going to bake something. And I said, oh, let me fix, let me put the fixed firmware on it. Let's try this. Yeah. And then it was like, <laughs> what about tomorrow? The pressure's on. Yeah. So it just erased. And, and then finally, when I got the replacement board, it turned out they actually, they didn't, they only enabled one of the security features. So. They stopped enabling both of them, which I think, so the feature that they originally had enabled would have prevented them from reading out anything. When I got the second board, and I suspect maybe they had some issue with returns and they wanted to see, hey, are these getting corrupted? Like the flash firmware, is it getting corrupted or something? I think they didn't enable the second feature so they could do that analysis. This is my guess anyway. So when you took a look at this firmware uh, from the oven, what were you able to determine about how it was written? One of the things you say in your presentation is your oven is, our ovens are lying to us, right? So at some level, these devices are being programmed to represent a certain operating state, but that may not really reflect what's actually going on in, in this case in, in the oven. Could you actually see that happening in, in the code that like the actual oven temperature was not being relayed or it was, what were you able to discern about the operation of the oven just from the firmware you, you extracted? So it was interesting. You could actually find, luckily because it's a pretty simple old code, I basically wrote a little monitor that would dump memories to a serial port uh, that was on the oven. And with that, I could actually see eventually find where it's storing the firm, the temperature in memory. So I could make these plots. Here's the actual temperature, right? And actually when it's turning on and off the elements. So you could see, right, even without looking at the code flow, you could see, which was the original question I wanted to answer was, is it the temperature sensor? Because I don't think it is. And it, and I don't it think it wasn't. Yeah, it, yeah. it's right. It, it's reading correctly. The only thing it doesn't, and this might've been one of the reasons they have this cheat in there where they don't show the varying temperature is when the heater turns on, I think due to electrical noise, it's like the temperature goes off by 15 or 20 degrees. It's just whenever the heater's on instantly, it's not heating. It's just the electrical right, noise of that heat, I'm guessing from the wires. So I think one of the reasons they did this firmware hack was actually to cover, because like if you're a user and you see the temperature jumping around, right? 
you're going to you're going to say oh the oven's broken or something's not exactly working. right so the, if you, they say in the manual, oh, don't worry, that's just electrical noise, right? <laughs> no one's going to read that and believe them. It's Talk about f your fix for your oven. So what did this require you to do to get it so that it was more accurately reflecting the temperature inside the, the oven itself? So for that, once I had the, the code out of it, which is really just the binary firmware, right? Then it was a sort of classic reverse engineering to, to figure out, okay, where in this binary is any of the control logic? And there was a few different things I tested. So one of them was just making it display the actual temperature. And so that at least lets you knew when things were up. The second fix I did, which, so I'll, I'll get to the, the issues with it right in a second, but the second thing I fixed was that the actual control logic, I basically, made it stay in that preheat mode where it's actually correctly more aggressively controlling the temperature so it it would get back up to temp the final issue which i haven't fixed yet is there's some fail safe i think because right now every few days the oven just won't heat it'll go to 86 fahrenheit and that's it and so you have to flip the circuit breaker you can't just turn it on or off on the control panel anymore you have to kill the power yeah and the first time that happened, I was away. So my wife, I'd say, okay, you have to reboot the oven from the circuit breaker. And I think that'll work. And it did. But yeah. Uh, so that's the one last I'm imagining thing. some conversation with your wife standing at the circuit breaker and you're being <laughs> like, well, try. Yeah. And, and we just had a, the panel replaced, but then they, I think that was at least maybe accurately marked, but a bunch of stuff wasn't too. Right? Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. The <laughs> I think it's the double one. When you talk to people who are like reverse engineering software or digging into stuff, you're finding all kinds of interesting stuff in the you know, developer comments or, you know, just indications about who wrote this, when it was written, things that were, you know, commented out that used to be in there. Like any insights in your research into, you know, how this sausage got made? Was this, is this Samsung code? Is this contractor code? How old is it? Like, any of that stuff, or was it pretty clean? Not it's a lot pretty opaque. The thing is, because it's this old processor, they really, I think they really tried to optimize for size. Because, yeah. You know, the only reference I have is one of the passwords is has Samsung in it. Okay. It must have been, and the, the board is marked Samsung, stuff like that. So at some level, it is Samsung. It's not completely, with ECU is how it's a different right. entire tier that's made it whether or not they internally had someone else do it. I would suspect it's probably them based on the fact it's used in such a wide line of, of products. So you added these new features, you tweak the temperature monitoring sensor functionality, right? And then you recompiled the code and you basically could flash the, the microcontroller with the updated uh, code. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it ran. Yeah, it ran. And everything I'm doing, I guess I should give the caveat, right? This is all just little binary patches. So binary it's all patches, very yeah. uh, minimal what you can do. It's okay. Don't do this jump. So in, that, in the case of the temperature sensor update, you could just see where they say, oh, if we're out of preheat mode, only display 375 or whatever your set temp is, right? So you just comment out that jump that did it. And, and if you were a non, if you were an oven owner who was not a PhD electrical engineer, is it like, how would you go about installing Collins P 
patch for their Samsung oven, what would the process be? They like pull it in, pull it out from the wall, like patch into that microcontroller and get their laptop and upload the software. Like how is it, how would you affect that change? That's, and so I thought originally, so the original plan, which of course, when you're like, oh, so much time to do this, was to try to make a little, because you could run this off an Arduino or something. It's just a yeah. serial protocol. Like That's a little dongle or something. You could exactly. Just... You press the button and flash. So right now, there's code on the, the GitHub that GitHub, has yeah. the serial interface running in Python. So it's a little more involved. The other thing, too, is because it's the serial interface, you really need an isolated, opto-isolated interface because it's being plugged into your wall while it's running. But yeah, it's not. The other thing, too, with that is that one of the things I realized is that if you look at any of the people doing these repairs, everyone just replaces the boards, right? There's no firmware update process at all. So there's this, there's a connector on the board for doing the firmware update. It's not documented that I've ever been able to find on yeah. the service side even, which is also pretty crazy because it's to either get a newer firmware update and there, I don't know what the difference is because I ended up erasing my oven, but I could see the checksum of my original oven firmware is different from the checksum of the new oven firmware. So and there's, the been same... a, there's been a modification at some point. Yeah, right. So, and maybe they fixed some of the issues. Like it didn't seem everything, but right. it would make sense, right? That they would have had newer versions. But so the thing is, I'm sure people are replacing their boards. They don't even need a pack or anything, right? They just want a firmware update. And yeah, I'm curious because the microcontroller is EOL. It also has the question, are they going to stop making more of the boards? Right. Are people not going to be able to get spare parts for their oven? Right. And maybe all it needs is a firmware update. Firmware update. You don't even need a new board, right? You can just do yeah. this. Yeah. Totally without. And as obviously replacing the board, even though it's better than replacing the entire oven, but you're still creating a fair amount of e-waste when you could solve this problem much more simply with a software update. And, it's, and the software update. Maybe that's something people can do for right. techie and have a serial interface yeah. thing. It's, they can or here's a crazy idea. Way. Maybe oven makers can start to make it easy to do this type of stuff, right? Because that will prolong the life of the device. So that brings us to the sort of the, the other aspect of your talk that I think is so interesting. And I'm so glad Black Hat Tookie is presenting you, which is this whole larger conversation around uh, repairability, circularity, prolonging the useful life of, of devices. And you point out in their presentation that one of the consequences of this funky temperature sensor feature is that a lot of consumers who aren't PhDs in electrical engineering are gonna say, I'm not gonna reverse engineer this and patch the code. I'm gonna throw the, I'm gonna get rid of this thing, throw it in the trash, throw it in a landfill and get a new oven that doesn't have this problem. Whereas, as you've shown, you don't need to do that, right? There's a way to get to correct the workings of this uh, software and get the get the equipment to be much more functional than it than it is uh, as as shipped by the manufacturer. So I'm I'm really, is there a business model, <laughs> right, for what you did? You talked about oh, if we had a dongle and so on. Is that a possibility? If not with this device, maybe other devices are going forward. Yeah, I'm sure there must be. I'm terrible with this because I always have ideas that are 60% executed. So I, of course, I thought of a little bit about this and I was like, ah, now something else is interesting. So no time for that. 
I'm I'm sure there would be. I know, for example, on the automotive side, there's tools for reflashing like airbag computers and things because mm -hmm. once the airbags go off, the computer becomes invalid. And so I know there's people that sell tools and that's their whole purpose is, you know, it's physically fine. You just need to reflash it and they charge people to every time. I don't know how exactly it does a flash or there's a big cost of getting the tool. I'm sure for oven repair techs, like, again, because Samsung doesn't even tell you that this is possible to reflash yeah. them. Or if you wanted the code added to debug so that you could actually see, hey, what is the temperature sensor? You don't have to go replace everything. You just plug in right. and you can dump, oh, oh the temperature's off. Like, there you go. I know to replace that, not spend all this time. And to your point of people replacing them, I'm sure there's lots of techs that have come over when people have this oven, they say they have this problem and this hex is going to say, I can try to fix it, but I'm going to have to replace the temperature sensor. And if it's not that 50 bucks, I'm going to replace the control board. That's 200 and it could be the element. Oh, there's a hundred. You're going to be $500 in mm -hmm. and it might not fix it. I can't even guarantee. Mm -hmm. I'm positive they've had that conversation because the tech doesn't want to. Most of the time they don't like just throwing parts at it. And, They'll do what they're trained to do, right? Most techs are going to run down a checklist of likely problems and what's most likely and start there. If they're not trained to say, oh, hey, there's this logical port. You can flash software. Here's an update. Mm. Then they're not going to do that. Right? You don't do what you're not trained to do. And yeah, you definitely don't I'm... want to take the risk. Right? Exactly, right? That's right. it. Yeah. yeah. You're not going to say, oh, let's get this random guy's code. And <laughs> don't worry, customer. Right. I exactly. trust him. Talk about, so how does it work now? How did it work before with the temperature sensing? And how does it work post Colin patch? Yeah. So the main issue, so the number one issue with this seems to be, a, it, they basically, I mentioned at the beginning, I thought maybe they'd do this PID controller, which would be your standard, right? Really nice temperature controller system. What they do instead, and my friend that's more into industrial told me this once and then I, now I've forgotten what he told me exactly, of course. People are gonna listen and say, that's not quite right. But it's a pulse control, right? So it's like, it has a fixed pulse with heater and you can see it just does these pulses. Um, and I'm guessing, I don't know if that's because the element, you don't want it on all the time or whatever reason. Uh, but the issue with that is that the pulses are too narrow to actually recover. So if you put a big load in, like a big turkey, and the door's open for a few minutes, so the temperature's dropped, it can never, it just, it doesn't have enough power in that mode to ever right. recover. In preheat mode, it just turns on the element more or less solid. So in that mode, it gets up to temperature really fast, and then it tries to just maintain, and it's the maintenance mode that's problematic on mine. Right. And, and it could be, so the other thing you can get is if the element is a bit broken, or my theory is it's a bit worn over these are older ovens, it's aged. So the kind of parameters they tuned for have no shifted. If this was a PID controller or something that had more feedback in it, I think it would recover more reasonably. Those are designed to account for this. So that was the fundamental problem was it just wouldn't get back up to temperature if you had a big load in and it seemed to be because of this. And, and what I did is I basically leave my oven in preheat mode now or so the mm -hmm. firmware. So it's doing much more aggressive pulses. So the, the time it turns on for is longer. 
it works. It looks a lot more like a classic mechanical thermostat. It's over temp, do nothing. It's under temp, turn on. So you, so you get a bit more of a ripple, um, but it's averaging on what you want instead of before where it was slowly going down. And here's a big question. You've done a couple tests. I noticed shepherd's pie, some souffle. What's the, what's the experience been? It seems good. To be honest, we had to recalibrate a bit because we, without realizing that you get so used to the fact that it's under, we've been cooking stuff hotter. Hotter, right. So we've had to recalibrate a bit with that. Yeah. And the other issue right now is still this problem. And it, it only seems to happen when you first turn it on where it just won't heat at all and needs to be rebooted. So yeah, that's still, and a part of it might be, I did add this monitor code I mentioned, which was more serious. It uses some memory that might be used elsewhere. I, I took a guess. Right. So I it may just remove that. Obviously for cooking, I don't need the monitor. That was purely for debug and testing. One of the things that's really interesting to me about this research is I think it, it speaks to how the sausage is being made right now in the the appliance world, the personal electronics world, which is, I think we all have this sense of manufacturers like Samsung or LG or even Apple. Oh, that means they're always using the best components and they're, they've got the smartest software engineers working for them, which like at a high level is true, but it's like Upton Sinclair, the jungle, right? When you go into the sausage factory onto the floor and see how it's being made. Like in this case, you're like, they're using a really old microcontroller with a really old processor that can't really handle that much. And so they're actually having to make design choices about this software based on the limitations of the hardware. And that's, they're making compromises, right? And like you said, uh, they've got this port, they could be doing software updates and that type of maintenance, but they're not. They're not doing it. They're not training their techs to do it. So they've structured this whole kind of product lifestyle cycle in a way that's very suboptimal, right? That most people would look at that and be like, we really, you're not really doing everything you could be doing to support this thing. And in fact, you made a whole bunch of junky design decisions based on this junky old hardware. Like it's like the sausage factory. You're like, Hey, you just pick that piece of meat up off the floor and put it in the cell. Like you can't do that. And your research really, for me, synthesizes all that. Yeah. Like when people like you peel back the covers of the software locks and the DRM and actually look at what's going on, often it is this kind of Upton Sinclair's jungle, like, oof, what a mess. <laughs> yeah. No, it's interesting because so coming maybe more from the design engineering side too, right? There's a lot of these things where especially in the embedded space, it's funny people that don't have the design embedded design background, get into it and you'll see their talks and they'll be like, Oh, like these, the embedded designers, why did they do this crazy thing? That's totally terrible and insecure. And so I know because I would do that exact same thing because I just took the manufacturer's example app and compiled it and was done. I've I've definitely done that. No question. But yeah. And, and sometimes it's, there's constraints within the company. So a, a while back, I did some stuff looking at Philips Hue and they had this issue where their bulbs were using the, a the light bulb, key. smart light bulbs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they use the same key across all the bulbs, right? For the firmware. 
which isn't a great idea. And, and the thing is they go to the server and they ask, hey, server, give me the latest version of firmware for this product. So they 100% could use a per device key and they have good, it's like smart engineers working there, you know them. And, it, and I never actually asked in the end, but I 100% know, right? Like a bunch of engineers, I'm sure were like, yeah, this is a bad idea. We should be doing per device key, of course, or at least per product line key or something. And I'm guessing it was just a cost, right? Cost of maintaining this larger update infrastructure for securely or more securely doing it. It's also a lot of the case where people are giving these designers impossible constraints, right? Either on the cost for the consumer product has to be below X, right? Even if it was 10 cents more and they could add this more secure device or whatever it might be. But yeah, it's interesting too, because clearly, and, and you can never know for sure, of course, not being in the company, but a lot of the time it looks like this was an artificial constraint that the engineers made work. It's, it's, yeah, it just shows you like the, the process of making these products and writing the software, like you got a lot of things that you need to do. And if there isn't a really top down process of saying, let's go through what you've done with a security eye, with a sort of red teaming eye on it. How would a malicious actor look at this? What types of things would they be probing around at? Then it's easy for stuff to slip off your radar as a engineer, right? You're, you're trying to just get features done, check them off and move on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. completely. Yeah. Did you, have you had any contact with the manufacturer with Samsung or Samsung engineers or anything? I haven't yet. I didn't. I, a while back, I'd reached out, but I, I didn't push that very hard. It's such a, A, the microcontroller on the Toshiba side is EOL for yeah. a while. So in fairness, you know, they shouldn't. So let me ask you, what is the big, what is the big fix for this in, in, in your mind? I, again, the high, the 10,000 foot level version of your, of what you've explored here is the manufacturer put not very high quality software on their home appliance. It was causing problems for owners, but there was no really easy way to fix it. You just happen to be technical enough to actually go in and fix it yourself. Um, what is What in your mind would be like the big fix for this across product categories, across the economy, these types of problems that when you really look under the covers, they're really software problems and the manufacturer is often the source of the problem, not the solution, or maybe the source and the solution. Yeah, the, it's a good question. If you could solve all of that, you're really solving poor software design in general. For these, I think for me, the... Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I guess maybe it speaks to lots of the question of how do you even know if a product does what it says it should do, right? Do you get consumer protection right is basically it, which is maybe easier when it's a physical, I don't know, a door that doesn't open or it catches and in a fire, your door doesn't open. There's going to be a recall, but I, I think software has become so complex and nebulous that, um, yeah. What is the way that consumers can say this class action they were trying to do mm -hmm. is really how I guess people are trying to solve it that way because like you look at the complaints have been going on for years. Yeah. The other is just to have independent software providers, right? Like you. 
who who can come along and say, hey, Samsung shall do an oven with crappy software on it. We've got an update. We've got a version of software that will not only fix that problem, but add this feature and that feature and maximize the potential of your hardware, right? We don't really have that so much. You buy a piece of hardware and you just assume that it's always going to run the software that it came with. Yeah. No, you're completely right. And I originally I had thought of like, ooh, could I make an open source oven controller for my oven software and then have a better pay? Do it. Do it. <laughs> yeah. So also, yeah, the issue is that there's, then I realized, when I realized, like, ah, then there's the variance of this other microcontroller. Although if you had an abstraction layer, it might not actually be too bad because it's, and, and to be honest, most of the buttons on my oven, at least it has all these buttons I've never pressed, like chicken tenders button and all this stuff. Most nice. of the time, the only feature I use is convection bacon. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Bacon so, broil, maybe. Yeah, broil. Yeah. So it's like really what you'd have to implement. I don't think that much. Final question is, if other people are listening to this and like, oh, this is really cool. I want to get more into learning about the embedded software that might be running on my oven or my dishwasher. Like, where would you suggest that they go and start digging around? Yeah, so I mean, if they're interested, so I, I've posted a bunch of stuff specifically to my oven, which might be really interesting to people just to see, hey, what's this actually look like? So my blog, colinoflin.com, has a link to that, to the GitHub. There, there's a bunch, a bunch of links below it. So it'll be a blackhead. I also co-authored a book, The Hardware Hacking Handbook. So Jasper, who's at a company, Riskier, that does very similar stuff at a higher level. And I wrote this book. And it talks a lot about how do you even get into it in general, which is like, ripping the cover off and playing around. And, and for a lot of this stuff, it is just as a kid, taking things apart and, and looking at what it, what's inside it. With, with the caveat, eBay is really nice for this because as in my example, the oven control board and oven is really expensive. So you can buy an eBay one, poke yes. at that before you, yeah, get your partner less happy with you. For Colin O'Flynn, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. It's been a lot of fun.